Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my longtime friend, Ryan Kelly. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Hey, thank you, Richard. Um, We do about 80% of these podcasts are kind of LGBTQ-related. This is not. This is one of the 20%, and we're going to talk about um, a man who died in World War II in the prime of his life in his 20s that had no posterity. Um, His name is Jerry, by the way, Kelly. He's a graduate of Granite High School, was the senior class president, went off to war, World War II. And we're going to tell his story from the perspective of his relative, Ryan, who had no contact with this man, in fact, didn't know anybody that knew him, but felt a deep impression to learn about this long-forgotten relative and tell his story. And I've been on Ryan's Facebook page and have seen this story be told. Um, It's been in the ensign, and it's just a wonderful story of finding somebody and turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. I think uh, we offered a prayer before we started. I just, I think we hope as you hear this story that you'll be drawn to people in your posterity or others whose stories need to be told. And and the way we can tell those stories and the importance of family history and temple work. And so I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. Um, is that a fair introduction? Did I get any facts wrong? No, that was perfect. Richard, that was very clear and spot on. Um, just about Ryan. Ryan um, is married. Um, his dear wife, Paige, we went to their wedding reception. They're just a wonderful couple. They have a child. Ryan is in his early 30s. Uh, mid 30s, 36. I got All white right. hair. So. You've got <laughs> just a touch of gray there. Um, 36 and is a career in, in financial planning is or financial yeah, advice. Yeah, investment advice. Investment mm-hmm. advice. Lives here in Salt Lake City. So just start telling us your story. Yeah, I uh, yeah. So it was the summer of 2013 that uh, in June of 2013 I had uh, two friends pass away. One in a boating accident, and then one friend in a in an ATV accident. And it happened in the same week in June of 2013. And you know, both were young. One was a friend from uh, my mission in the Pennsylvania Harrisburg mission. You know, just this wonderful young man who died tragically in an ATV accident in Southern Utah. Uh, no. He he was in Pennsylvania, and then oh. there was a boating accident of a friend in Lake at Lake Powell, and and you know it it was just one of those things where you know the combination of those two um, passings of those two young people in the prime of their life it just really caused me to reflect on the resurrection and and on the plan of salvation, and and it was after that time I I just was looking for a lot of solace and. Um, you know, not that I was super close to these two individuals, but close enough that, you know, there was a loss there. And and I came across a talk called uh, The Songs They Could Not Sing by Elder Quentin L. Cook that he gave, I think, in 2011. And uh, on my lunch breaks, it was in the summertime, I, I, liked to, I would like to walk on my lunch breaks and I uh, would go to the uh, Cottonwood Softball Complex or the holiday softball complex over there on 4500 south and about uh, 13th east and i'd walk you know in that park and i would just spend a half hour and i'd read that talk and i just read it again and again you know multiple lunch walks and the talk just said so many things that really resonated with me uh in the talk elder cook he he talks about this woman 
who died on the Titanic, a woman named, I think, Irene Corbett. And she was someone who went to London to, to learn midwife skill, skills. And, and she died on the Titanic, you know, one of the few women to die on the Titanic. And they say it was because she was helping those who were injured. Uh, but anyway, that, that talk, one of the things Elder Cook said was he said that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to deal with all of the unfairness of life. And so I, I, I really felt inspired by that. And then, and then it was soon after that that my uncle dropped off an autobiography that my great-great-great-grandfather Thomas Briggs had written. And he had written it in the early 1900s. And, and my uncle dropped it off at my parents' house. And my mom said, you know, you should really consider reading this book, Ryan. I think you'd really like it. And I did. And at the end of that book, uh, my great-great-great-grandpa Briggs wrote, uh, do not forget the dead. He said, you know, I give this as a message to my posterity. Do not forget the dead. And when I read that, it's just the name Jerry Kelly uh, popped into my mind. And Jerry, I always knew his name. I knew he was my grandpa's little brother who was a pilot in World War II who had died. But I realized in that moment, it just dawned on me how little we knew about him. We knew his name. We knew that he was the senior class president at Granite High School, but, and we knew he was a pilot who died in Germany in World War II, but I would say that's about everything my dad and our family knew, in part because my grandpa Kelly, Jerry's older brother, my grandpa died in 1974, and he didn't like talking about the war, and you know it was just so painful, that memory of, of Jerry, and so just one of those stories that was forgotten and reading that line, do not forget the dead, made me realize this is a forgotten story. And then the thought came to me, you can find out more about this. You just need to go look for it. Wow. So, so Jerry is your grandfather's younger brother. He is. And yeah. your grandfather was gone before you were born. Yeah, nine years before I was born. And so I think it's one of the interesting things about this story is nobody around you knows Jerry Kelly. Yeah, yeah. And everyone kind of talk about finding people that knew him. Yeah. And so everyone in my family knew the name Jerry Kelly. And we, I, I think we even honored his name. But no one in my circle of family, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, none of them could say, I knew Jerry Kelly because they all were born after he was passed Jerry away. married. Did he have any kids when he went off to war? No, he had, he had a girlfriend, friend named, um, Marilyn Romney, you know, who I later found out about in the letters and he maybe would have married her, but, uh, but no, he, yeah, he died having never married and never having had children. And how many siblings did he have? He was the middle of, uh, three children. His, okay. he had an older brother, my grandpa, Gene Kelly, a great named <laughs> Gene Kelly. And then, and then he had a younger sister named Ruth Kelly, who, um, uh, is my great aunt who I actually ended up meeting, who I always knew she was my great aunt, but I had never actually met her. She lived in California and she ended up becoming a really important part of my, my research. Yep. That's really, and you're about 20, how old are you? You're in your twenties when this all started? Uh, it, yeah, it all happened. It, it got going the August, August of 2013. So I had just six, turned, six years ago. So, yeah, right so I had just turned 29, 30, 30. Yep. Okay, keep telling this story. Yeah, so uh, 
So I read where that. Where do you go? I mean, yeah. Yeah. You could search that name on the internet. I don't know where you start. So yeah. Yeah. I didn't even begin on the internet. I later found out I should have because I ended up finding quite a bit on the internet. But what I did was I, the first thought I had was we needed a picture of him because it just dawned on me, you know, we, we have to find it. We have to, we have to know what this man looks like because it, it dawned on me. We don't even know what he looks like. And my, you know, I, re- I talked to my dad. I said, dad, do you think we have a picture of Jerry, you know, in our family albums? And, and my dad said, boy, I really wish we did, but nothing was passed down. My dad said, I, I think I remember seeing one picture of Jerry when I was a young boy, but, but I don't even remember what he looks like. So then I had, and, and this is an example of the power of using your family history consultant, but I was in the Winder's second YSA ward and our family history consultant in that ward I, I talked to her and I told her about how I wanted to find a picture of my great uncle. And, and I, I told her what I knew about him, that he was the senior class president at Granite High. And, and she said, well, why don't you find a yearbook? And I said, well, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. And I said, well, where do I find a yearbook? And she said, well, just call the school district. And, and so I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And so, yeah, I called the school district and and I, I was able to find on FamilySearch the, uh, the birth date of Jerry. So I kind of did the math and I said, well, he probably graduated from high school in 1942. So I called him and said, I asked, do you have really old yearbooks in, you know, in storage? And they said, yep, we've got them all. And did you even know they did yearbooks in 1942? Yeah. I mean, I didn't even really think about it. I don't know when yearbooks became a thing. <laughs> yeah. I think a long time ago, but I, I said, I need the 1942 granite yearbook. and. And they said, well, we've got it. Come down anytime and we'll show it to you. So, so on a lunch break, August 21st, 2013, uh, hot day, went to the Granite School District, I think on State Street, went up to the office they told me to go to and uh, walked in and there was a secretary there. And I said, hey, I'm here to look at the 1942 yearbook. And she said, oh, it's so cool. I've been looking through it. And wow. she said, here it is. And there's a room. Take as much time as you want. So I'm in the room and, and I, I just start opening this yearbook and, and it took me a little while, but I found, uh, I found him on page 96 and, you know, there he is, his senior class president photo with him and his class officers. And, and when I saw his picture, you know, I, it's hard to describe the, just how moving it was to actually see what he looked like. And, and I, I remember my first thought was that he looked like Joe DiMaggio <laughs> and, and it was as if he was telling me, like, I, I could feel his spirit in the room. You know, I, I couldn't see his spirit, but I could feel his spirit. And it was just a, as if he was saying, you found me and there's a lot more that I want to tell you. That's just kind of the, the feeling wow. I had. That's a pretty tender moment right there. And I, you showed me before we went live, I wish all our listeners could see this picture of this, I assume, 18-year-old young man with mm-hmm. his life ahead of him senior class president of Granite High School, probably the ward broken out by then. I wish I knew my facts better. Maybe if we interviewed him right there, I, you will, maybe can tell us if he knew he was going to go enlist, but with a lot of worry about the future. And mm-hmm. I think of our own high school son who just graduated this year, and he had none mm-hmm. of that in front of him. He had the same hopes and dreams for a family and a life, and and he doesn't have to worry about a war like mm-hmm. like Jerry did. Yeah. Yeah, Pearl Harbor broke out, you know, during his senior year. And after it broke out, he actually spearheaded a movement or a campaign 
to raise uh, wa- to raise war bonds to sell war bonds to help fund the war and and uh, I, I found a picture in a newspaper uh, article that I found on newspapers.com, which is a great resource for family history work. And there's a picture of him presenting this $1,200 war bond, which represented the funds that uh, he and his class officers had raised to help fund the war. So I think, you know, when he graduated from high school, that graduation ceremony, I think I actually found in my research a program outlining the the talks that were given at that graduation and and the war was the big focus. Was I think, you know, these senior class members, you know, knew that that they were that this war was going to be a really big deal and that they were going to play an important part in it. So I love your line. I have more to tell you, I think, that Jerry <laughs> said to you. So Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I went went back to my office, you know, had things to do at work, but uh you know, How many but, pictures did you see of him? Just that one, or are there multiple pictures of him in the year? Yeah, I, I saw the one picture of him and his class officers, uh, senior class officers, and then there was another picture of him, uh, his class photo, and then there was one other picture. He was so his mom ran a bakery, and and this picture was him. I guess he was the president of this like boys baking club, which was kind of interesting. And so there were three photos I found in the yearbook. So where do you go next? Yeah, you? yeah. So after that, what happened was over the next few months, just all of my spare time was spent trying to find more information. It was, I, I think, you know, your listeners who have really gotten involved in, in deep family history research, I think they could relate that once you get on a, a, a project with family history work, it's, it's kind of an accelerated thing that the more you learn, the more you want to learn, but it, it just, the enthusiasm never ends. And so I would just, after I found that picture, it, it almost increased my confidence that, you know, I can, I can do this again. I can find more information on him. And, and I thought, well, one of the things I, I want to uh, find out is who, who is still alive, who knew him? Cause I had never talked to anyone who personally knew him. And how old would he be if he were alive when you were trying, when you were learning about him? Uh, when I was learning about him, he would have been... In like 2013. Mm-hmm. When yeah, he would have been eight, 89. So you're, that's helpful. So you're looking for people, if they're his age, that are 89. Yeah. And so at that time, I had the feeling, there's well, the clock be, is ticking. Like The clock is ticking. Yeah, I thought there are probably people who knew him and remembered him and could tell me about him and offer kind of a firsthand memory of him. But I thought, you know, I gotta, I gotta get going cause there's not much time left. And, uh, first person I reached out to was, let uh, me ask a question. Yeah. If, if I had talked to you in 2013, would you have known the end goal? Would you have said, I'm, this is what I need to do with Jerry. This is kind of, I want to, would you have known kind of, I mean, right now you're kind of know what you've accomplished with Jerry and you're, would you have known that back in 2013? It was just a feeling I got to learn about this guy and bring this guy's story to life. Yeah. That's a really good question. At that time, I did not know how this was going to turn out. I didn't know where it was going to lead. I didn't know what I was going to find out. I didn't know what I was going to be told. And so this is very much walking in the elder Bednar fog type of experience oh, where you can just kind of know the next thing. 
Yeah, it was. You don't quite know. There's not a light switch experience where you know exactly what you're supposed to do, except that yearbook mm-hmm. confirmed you this is exactly what you're supposed to do without much of a roadmap on how to do it. Yeah, and and what happened was was yeah, I mean that's exactly right. That I had no idea where it was going to lead, which made it so fun cool. because every time, and I had so many great isolated experiences. For the next year. It was really a one year. Did you know, you're going to talk about this later, at this time, did you know if his temple work had been done or not? I did, because I went on family search. Okay. And one of the first things I found was, because I went to Google after I came home from uh, the uh, Granite School District. After work, I got onto Google and I said, why don't I Google his name, you know, and, and Google World War II next to his name. Cool. Yeah. And it actually led me to the website uh, Fold3, I think is the name of the website. It's connected to Family Search, uh, not run by the church, but I think they have a partnership. And and so I I uh, signed up for an account on that, and, and it's specifically family history, but with military documents. And, and I put in his name, and I found a headstone application filled out in 1949 by my great-grandfather requesting a free headstone for Jerry's grave. And that right there told me, wow, Jerry's grave did. Jerry's body was repatriated back to Salt Lake, but it took five years for that to happen. Wow. And um, anyway, I lost my train of thought there. No, that's a little helpful. Bit, but, Just you knew his temple work had been yeah, done. Yeah, but, but then because of that, then with that information, I, I was like, well, you know, let me go take a look at family search. And I looked at the ordinances and, and I realized that his ordinance, his uh, he had been baptized and confirmed as an eight-year-old boy, but his endowment and and other ordinances were uh, completed the week after he was uh, buried in Salt Lake. So they, the family, you know, thought he was missing in action for a while, and then it was confirmed that he had they had found his body, but they waited for him, uh, his remains to be repatriated home. So. Maybe this podcast is helpful for all of us as we just think about people in our past that what we can do to bring their stories to life. So mm-hmm. you keep sharing more of the story. Where did you go next? Yeah. And I'll, you know, I'll be brief cause I can, there's so many things that happened, but, uh, kind of a few of the highlights, um, basically what happened was I could not get him out of my mind from the point I saw his picture in the yearbook, you know, for about, uh, especially a good six months, I don't think an hour would go by that I wouldn't think about him. And I would just, he just was always in my mind. And so I, I was able to find some things on Fold3, some military documents. I connected with a wonderful uh, World War II genealogist named Jennifer Hollick, uh, who's based out of Chicago. And she, I just, you know, it was very serendipitous that I was able to connect with her. And she ended up being this sounding board. And she gave me so much good advice along the way that allowed me to find military documents and other things to really you know, just piece this story together. It was almost like I was trying to put together a, a puzzle. And, but uh, in October, so a couple months went by, uh, I was able to find some of his high school friends and talk to them, and that was a really neat experience. And I was able to find his grave in the Salt Lake Tell City. Tell us one of those experiences of... Of a friend. Of a high school friend. How do you find a high school friend, and how do you find a phone number, and do you call and just... Tell us of an experience down that road. Yeah, so the first person I, I found uh, who who knew my Uncle Jerry was a man named Richard Winder, 
and he was of the Winder Dairy uh, family. And he actually served as the student body president at Granite High when Jerry was the senior class president. And my dad, just as I was doing this research, he remembered, he said, well, I, I know Richard Winder was friends with Jerry. And so I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to, to Richard Winder. And, and I actually, um, I, I did some research on Richard Winder and I found out he had been the president of the Nauvoo temple. Wow. And I was like, well, Wayne Peterson in our, you know, family yeah. ward, he was the president of the Nauvoo temple. Maybe Wayne can help me get a hold of Richard. And sure enough, Wayne, you know, who had been my home teaching companion when I was in high school, he was very helpful and helped me get Richard's phone number. And sure enough, he was live, alive and very sharp. You know, he was 89 at the time. And, and I, what I actually did was I wrote him a letter and then I remember he, he called me, I put my phone number in the letter and he called me and we had a half hour conversation. And he, he just, when we started talking, he said, I, I said, well, tell me what you remember about Jerry. And he said, oh, I remember him so well. And he said, he was very thin, very tall. And he said, and very gracious. And I said, well, what do, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, Jerry and I ran against each other as, for student body president. And he said, and I only beat him by a couple of votes. It was a very close race. And he said, I was stunned at how gracious Jerry was in defeat. You know, for an 18-year-old to lose a, you know, a race for student body officer, you know, can be painful for a 17, 18-year-old. And he said, I was just so, he taught me so much that he was so happy for me that I had won. And he said, and I was his number one campaigner when he then ran for senior class president. So anyway, that was it just it further brought him to life. It was like, you know, you, you listen to someone who can share those kind of memories with such vivid detail. And it just, it's as if Jerry's coming more and more alive to me and I'm learning more about him. And I just, I, I want to continue to learn about him. And, and so, you know, time went by, I continued to learn. I found his missing air crew report, which provided a detailed map showing where his plane had been shot down in Germany. And so I was able to take all this information I learned, and I actually had the feeling I needed to write down what I was learning and, and write Jerry's story down using my own words in, in kind of a narrative way. So I, I wrote a three-page essay just about what I had learned about Jerry. And my dad read it, and he said, you know, Ryan, you need to reach out to my Aunt Ruth. And, and I said to my dad, I said, wait, I have a great Aunt Ruth. And he said, he said, yeah, you have a, Jerry's sister is alive. And I said, what, you know, why haven't I reached out to her yet? And he said, well, maybe just, you know, the timing wasn't right, but it just hit me. Okay. I need to reach out to her. And, and my mom said, well, I've got her email address. You know, I haven't emailed her for five years, but here's her email address. So <laughs> way to go, Kathy. <laughs> so I, I wrote her an e so I wrote Ruth an email. Uh, she was 86 years old at the time. And she lived in Santa Cruz, California. And I, I just said, Ruth, you know, this is your grandnephew, Ryan Kelly. I'm Tom's son. You know, I think we may have met when I was like six or seven years old, but, um, you know, I've just gotten so wrapped up in research on your older brother, Jerry. And I wrote this essay about him and, and I just would love to interview you and talk to you about him. And, and she wrote right back. And what I learned was just what a clear mind she had you know, despite being in her late eighties and, and she wrote back and she said, Ryan, I am thrilled to hear from you. And I cannot, you know, I just am so anxious to tell you all about Jerry. So 
from that point, she now became the person who just told me about Jerry and 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 my dad and I ended up flying out to visit with her and and I've got this box of letters which she ended up giving me uh before she passed away that has every letter that Jerry wrote during the war home to his mom uh and Ruth's mom and tell our listeners about this box and as you open it what you see and the and the yeah. just bring this box I'm looking at to life for our listeners this yeah, so, is sacred right this is yeah. sacred in my mind yeah and so when I visited Ruth in California, my dad and I flew into the San Jose airport and Ruth and her son, Phil, they picked us up from the airport, drove us from San Jose to Santa Cruz. And, you know, I just fell in love with these two people, Ruth and her son, Phil. And, and we went into her house and she just talked for three hours and told us story after, after story about Jerry and her family. And, and then at the end of that visit, she said, she said, now, Ryan, I've got every letter Jerry wrote home, uh, from the war to, she said, my mom, your great grandmother, Violet, uh, Kelly. Of course, that's who he'd write. Yeah, that's who he would write. And, you know, he was a mama's boy. He loved his mom. And, um, and she said, do you want to see the letters? And I just said, I, I would love to see him. And so she took me into her office and she had all these letters in this box. It's a blue box and you open up the top, and when you open it up, there's kind of a gold-colored lining, kind of a cushioned lining. And it's not a very big box, but you look in, and it's just packed full of letters in the original envelopes. And these are all the letters that Jerry sent home in flight training, and then, and then also when he was sent to Europe to, uh, to, to fly missions uh, in Europe. And, and the letters, they, they total, I think... You know, initially I thought they were 150, but I've ended up counting them and they're 227. And they go from January 1943 up until October 13th, 1944, which was seven days before he died. So and that's 18 months, 19 months. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, and he wrote, you know, a couple of, couple of weeks, something like that. And, and yeah, I've, and that is I knew I, I got to know Jerry before Ruth allowed me to borrow these letters and then ultimately gave them to me and entrusted them to me. But but it wasn't until I read through all the letters that I I felt like, you know, I really know this person now because. You read a letter that someone wrote and it's really them working out their thoughts on paper and and it just there's just so many gems in there where. I, it's almost like a window into his soul. So. Tell us about the letters, common themes, or what you learned about Jerry by reading these letters. Yeah, common themes. Uh, well, first off, excellent penmanship. <laughs> so he had very good penmanship. I'm yet to find a misspelling, which that tells me, you know, this was a diligent student, and I learned he had straight A's in high school and and just a very disciplined person. Um very much full of life. You know, he, he wasn't, he was someone who was very committed to the gospel and in terms of keeping gospel standards, but he wasn't this, you know, I, I don't know if I'd call him a goody two shoes who would never get upset at anyone. Like he, you know, he would sometimes get heated in letters. He'd say, you know, I've got this commanding officer who's driving me crazy and, and he'd talk about it. And, and, and so he just, you get the sense that this is a person who is full of life. And, and the letters 
also document his efforts to become a pilot in World War II because they didn't let, just let anyone become a pilot. And there were so many moments of uncertainty throughout that process where he thought he would get washed out and he would just keep going and keep, he, he just would never give up. That's one of the things I just love about, about him is he, he would never give up. He would just keep pushing, keep trying, keep working on becoming a better pilot. Why did he want to become a pilot? He wanted to become a pilot because he went on a senior trip, his senior year of high school with two friends, uh, Cliff Lawrence and uh, a man named Grant Fagg. And they were best friends. And when they went on this senior trip, they just started talking about how wouldn't it be great if we all became pilots. And I think at that time, that was kind of the, maybe the macho thing to do. It was like, well, if you wanted to aim high in your service in the war, you become a pilot. That was like the cool thing to do. And, and so I think that's why, why he ended up wanting to become a pilot. And, and I think also he kind of liked the idea of being kind of removed from combat, you know, kind of that, that if you're a pilot, you're flying missions where you don't really see things up close. I think that was one of the things that appealed to him. But then I think when he went into the war and started flying missions, you could definitely tell that the war in any form, whether you're a pilot or you're on the ground, is a very disturbing experience. And you, you can sense that in the letters. Have you read all 227 letters? Uh, yeah, I ha I'm, it's just great reading. You know, it, it's sad, but it's happy. It's funny. It's and what were his hopes? Did he talk about the future? Yeah, he, well, one of the things I learned um, in doing this research is, you know, our lives are very uncertain. He never hinted that he thought he was going to die in the war. You know, he died on his 10th mission, flying a mission over Nazi occupied Germany. Um, Where did he crash in Germany? Yeah, he crashed in a town called Frauenkron which is on the border, the Germany-Belgium border, uh, pretty close to Liege, Belgium. Do you want to go there someday? I did go there. You did go yeah, there. Yeah, so my wife, who I married um, after I initially started doing this research, she served a mission in Germany. So after we got married, she wanted to go to Germany to visit her mission, and I thought, well, this will be a great opportunity to try to find Uncle Jerry's crash site. And and we we didn't find his crash site, but but we we were able to find the town where he probably crashed and and that's on my bucket list to one day go back and 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 find that site how many died in the plane crash so he was a single pilot it was a p47 plane so it wasn't a bomber plane so he was the only one in the in the plane and is it hard to find crash sites is there documentation of crash sites or is it the locals that kind of know these things or yeah the way i found it out uh is Every soldier in World War II who died was um, a, an, a file called, called an IDPF, Individual Deceased Personnel File, was created. And this was a file that the government created to basically organize the, the military documents pertaining to that individual soldier. And, and the file also documented the efforts of the military to buried the dead of World War II. And so Jerry, he crashed um, 
in Frauen Crown, Germany on October 20th, 1944. And uh, it was a year and a half later in April of 1946 that the Graves Registration Service, which was a, a unit of the military that was given the responsibility to find all of those missing in action, that they were able to piece together, uh, you know, missing air crew reports and other things. And they were able to find uh, Jerry's plane and his body, which had been buried by the German military. Wow. Which, uh, you know, I think is, um, you know, it just reminds me that, you know, it's not that each side is all bad or all good. You know, there's good and bad they on each side. Him. And yeah, with respect. And they kept and, a record of where he's buried. Yeah, yeah. Not the Germans, but the American military, knowing where he got shot down, you know, it was then in 1946 that they went to that town and asked local people okay. if they knew of a plane crash site. And so they were able to find his remains and, and they used dental records and, and other things to confirm that it was his body. And then it was in 1949 that his remains were, were repatriated and he was buried in the Salt Lake Cemetery. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to, how would you find the actual crash site? Yeah. So yeah. If and, you found, if you went back, what would you do to find it? Yeah. So I was able to get a copy of that IDPF file. And when they found Jerry's uh, remains, the graves registration service uh, people who found his remains sat down and wrote a map showing exactly where they found his remains. So when I got this file, I found that page in his IDPF file. And I actually sent it to these, I, I was able to get in contact with these German, they call themselves World War II aviation archaeologists. That's cool. It's these guys who grew up in Germany with all of these That's World War II really plane cool. crash sites around who, and, and so I was able to connect with these two guys, Danny Kia and uh, Frank Guth, who uh, we, we were able to connect and, and meet up in the town of Frauenkron. And we spent a few hours trying to find Jerry's plane crash site. And we ended up finding a plane crash site, but it, we confirmed it wasn't Jerry's. But but if I were ever to go back, you know, these two guys now know where to look. So wow, yeah. As you, another question that came to my mind is: if you're reading Jerry's letters, what kind of parts does does he? I know he's committed Latter Day Saint. Does he talk about his faith? And um, is there a window into his um, the doctrines in our church that are important to him, or? The feelings are important to him. I don't know if he opened up religiously to, in his letters. Yeah, he he did a little bit, but not much. His dad was actually not a member of the church at that time. His dad would attend actively, but his dad was born in Oklahoma and had at that time in 1944 had had not yet joined the church. His dad ended up joining the church soon after Jerry went missing in action. Uh, his mom was a very faithful member, but he grew up in this unique home where. He had a mother who was very active and faithful, you know, church member, but his dad was a religious man, but not a particularly interesting, you know, his dad liked the church, but, but so Jerry, you know, never once do I, does he talk about reading the book of Mormon or reading the Bible? He does talk about prayer a lot. And so he says that every, in, in the letters, many times he says to his mom, you know, I pray every morning and every night that I'll return home safely. So prayer was definitely something that he cultivated in the war. You know, he was a faithful tithe payer. You know, he uh, these airmen in World War II, they got paid 
for their service. You know, not a lot, but they would get paid. And, and every time he'd get paid, he'd send home his tithing and ha- ask his mom to pay his tithing. But uh, he does talk a lot about keeping the standards of the church. And one of the things he he felt before his time in the war that he just really wanted to not develop the habit of swearing. It's not that he looked down on people who swore, but he knew that in the military, you know, everyone swore. And he kind of had this view and he has this letter where he talks about, he says, well, if before the war, I felt like I shouldn't swear just for me, why would I start doing it just because the crowd is doing it? So he definitely had this life view that you make decisions based off of what you feel is right. And you kind of try to avoid getting wrapped up in what the crowd wants you to do. And his, his friends who I, who I got to know, they, they, that theme definitely came through as they would talk about Jerry that, you know, he was just, he wasn't perfect, but he was someone who, who just had a, he had this moral compass and he was very committed to, to doing what he felt is right. But in the war, he definitely was able to learn to accept people who didn't have those same exact standards that he had. And that was a really cool balance that I discovered that he, he became very good friends with people who, you know, who didn't live church standards and, and they loved him because he was so open and so accepting to them. Probably so gracious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is kind of, I mean, questions come in my mind during these podcasts. I don't know where they come from, but what do you think Jerry would say, you know, because his life was cut short, and I think uh, part of the Sensine article is a buddy of his that saw him on the last day, and they were both fighter pilots, and they get tenderhearted, and they, I just think of my best bud at age 20, the brotherhood, and I think you talk about them saluting each other, waving as they both go off on their missions, and Jerry doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. And the guy that saluted him, you can give him a name in a second, came back and lived a full life. And and Jerry's a faithful Latter-day Saint doing, every, you know, mm-hmm. just a good guy. And, you know, if Jerry could take the mic right here, mm-hmm. you're the best person to speak for him. You know, what would he say about that, about his life being cut short by the way we measure it? And it's certainly his, what was his hope for as far as earth life, to have a family and posterity and all mm-hmm. these experiences he's been preparing his life for didn't happen. What do you think he'd say, Ryan? Yeah, boy, that that's a great question, Richard. Uh, so his best friend who you mentioned is still alive and still very sharp in his mind. And, and give us, tell us his name. Yeah, his name is Bob Sharp. Okay. Uh, great name for the fact that he's so sharp, <laughs> you know, at 96 years old. But... So Bob West. So here are these two guys. Yeah, two guys who got to know it. They were both from Utah, both P-47 pilots connected in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in their advanced pilot training, became fast friends very quickly, and then stayed together throughout the war, and then ended up flying missions together, including the last mission that Jerry was on. And Bob Sharp, you know, saw Jerry's plane go down, and he... Uh, you know, after that mission, he actually asked his commanding officer to let him go back and and try to find Jerry's plane because Jerry was missing. But wow. but the first time I I met Bob and I asked him about Jerry, the first thing he said to me was he said he said Jerry was the cleanest, purest man I ever met. 
and he said he just had this shiny goodness about him, but yet he was so kind and so gracious to others. And then he said, I've dealt with a lot of survivor's guilt because he said, you know, Ryan, I've tried to live a good life, but I've made a, you know mistakes in my life. And, and he said, and I've asked the question so many times, why him and not me? And he said, but as I've read the scriptures, I've had the spirit tell me that he will lose nothing for having been taken early from this life. And when he said that, it, it circled back to that talk I read by Elder Cook initially where Elder Cook said that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to deal with all of the unfairness of life. And, you know, Richard, I think of just how much unfairness there is in life. You know, I know one of the things you do is you try to minister to those who uh, feel forgotten and they feel like they're not being given the attention that they need and that there's not a level of understanding that really should be there. And it's, and it's an unfair thing, you know, if you, if you step back and think about it. And, and I think that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we live the gospel, it allows us to participate in helping to overcome some of that unfairness of life. And, and, you know, one of the talks I read uh, in the same Enzyme, February 2015, where I was given the opportunity to write about Jerry there's another article in there uh, written by a BYU family history professor where she talks about how family history changes our hearts and minds. But she has a quote where in that article, she says that doing family history work really can help us to see the grand scope of the plan of salvation and can help us to deepen our understanding of the atonement and of the resurrection. And, and so going back to your question, you know, what would Jerry say I, I think I get the feeling so many times, I, I just get this feeling as if he's saying, I'm okay. And that there's a greater plan and a greater purpose that that I know now that I've, you know, gone on to the other side of the veil. And, and, I, and I've had the thought so many times, one of the things I learned in my research was, Jerry, he didn't serve a mission, but right before the war, his bishop came up to him and put his arm around Jerry's shoulder and said, Jerry, before you go to the war, we're going to make you an elder in the Melchizedek priesthood. And, and when I heard that story from Jerry's friend, Cliff, when I was doing a personal history interview, and he told me that story, and he actually told me that story three times. I felt like Jerry was telling Cliff, you need to tell Ryan about how I was made an elder before, you know, I went to war. Uh, the thought came to my mind, it was that scripture, the faithful elders, when they depart this life you know, continue the preaching of the gospel. And I just, I just know that Jerry's uh, preaching the gospel and, you know, and I, I envision that he's been given the assignment to preach the gospel to, you know, to World War II guys who, who, you know, with him passed away. And so I, I just think Jerry would say the the gospel of Jesus Christ is beautiful and, and deals with every unfairness of life. That's a great answer. I think it's a great answer for all of us as we're wrestling with complicated things. And mm -hmm. I love this line that Bob Sharp said, he will lose nothing mm -hmm. that you said. And it reminds me of a young man in my YSA ward who had served in the military. And in the course of mm -hmm. that, he knew that whatever function he was in, in Afghanistan, um, the bad guy's you know, in the course of that, probably some innocent bad guys mm -hmm. died and he was torn up about 
perhaps women and children that died, not because he did anything wrong, but just in yeah. the process of whatever he's engaged in, bombing, I can't remember. And he asked for a blessing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I had no mortal explanation for to, to, to help him get over that. But then as I laid my hands on his head and, and had the thoughts of those innocent Afghanistan civilians mm-hmm. that were gone, the words came to my mind to this young man were, no one's eternal possibilities have changed because of what happened. Hmm. And it's sort of, and it just, it's back to your point about the plan of salvation and the power of the plan of salvation and the increased understanding of the positive causation with the restoration and just understanding this, you know, it's a three or three act play and we're in one act of it, but to understand the totality of it, mm-hmm. we have to understand the whole thing. And I love that. And I love your impressions that Jerry is ministering to his, his World War II buddies that are probably mm-hmm. German mm-hmm. and American. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if those guys that buried him, those yeah. German soldiers, you know, if he's if they've passed on, if he's ministering to them, you've no yeah. idea. I'm really comfortable with your answer, and and um, yeah, but it's helpful for all of us. Um, I had one other story, but I forgot it. So go back to tell your narrative. <laughs> well, you know, as you as you talk about that, I want I want to back up a little bit. When I went to Germany to try to find his plane, um, it turned out that there were two planes, American planes, that crashed outside the town of Frauenkron, and one was Jerry Kelly. And then one was a man named Erwin J. Koss, who was a P-38 pilot from Michigan, who died December 17th, 1944, a couple of months after Jerry. And they crashed a half a mile apart from each other. The map in Jerry's file showing where Jerry was found was actually Erwin's map. And that's why we didn't find Jerry's plane. And uh, they just got switched when the Graves Registration Service guys wrote the names down of those maps. They just switched the names. And and so we found Irwin's site, but these aviation archaeologist guys said, yeah, this isn't Jerry's plane. And I said, well, it's got to be. This is exactly where the map says they found his body. And they said, no, this is a P-38 plane. And they told me why. Well, about six months ago, I just had, and and so I brought home a piece of metal, a piece of the wow. fuel line of, of Irwin's plane. I should have I should have brought it tonight, but he, um, but six months ago, I just had the thought, well, I, I need to see if I can find Irwin's family to give him this piece of, of, of Irwin's plane. And so I just had the thought, go on family search. So I went on family search and I found a profile of Irwin and I found that part of his temple work had been done, wow. but not all of his temple work. And I was able to connect with his uh, niece who, uh, was who who actually started attending who became active in our church about five years ago got into temple work but then you know some things happened and and she stopped going to church but she got Irwin halfway there and and so anyway that experience you know now we've been in the process of finishing Irwin's temple work and and this woman has you know just been so excited about getting excited again about temple work but I just had the thought yep Jerry 
is doing his missionary work and and connected with this this man Irwin. But and wouldn't he work through you to make that happen? Whose mind is connected to him? And I just think the veil's been pretty thin. Mm-hmm. And all the impressions that I've always felt you act on every impression you get, and you don't try to spend time thinking where did that come from or what does that mean. It seems like, and you may not have been perfect. Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't. Like, <laughs> yeah, there are things acted with, on yeah. a lot of impressions here because there's no owner's manual for what you're doing. There's nobody that's mm-hmm. mentoring you, saying this is how we do it. You're it's uncharted territory. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and I there have been things that he's, you know, I felt prompted to do that I haven't followed up on, and you know, and I feel some guilt about that. But I, you know, I, I just think, you know, one one of the things I'll just add is. Family history work is so fun, especially the research side that that I think we just need to remember that these individuals that we're doing research on, that these were real people who were every bit as alive as we are today. And they have real stories and, you know, and fascinating stories and and life lessons from from their time on Earth. And and I think that one of the things I've learned is that if you have an individual in your family tree, especially someone who died young and and you want to learn more about them and you don't know where to where to begin it's a great opportunity to exercise faith to kind of say you know what i'm going to find something on this person i don't know how i'm going to do it but if i don't have a picture of them you know what i'm going to i'm going to think and i'm going to go on a detective case and i'm going to try to find a picture of this person who lived 100 or you know 120 years ago and i think that if you do that a miracle is going to happen. And the reason why is that this person you're researching is still a living spirit and they're going to help you because I think it's an eternal thing that people love to be asked their story. You know, I think it's why your podcast has meant so much to people that it means something, Richard, when you reach out to someone and you say, Hey, can you come on my podcast and, you know, let me listen, tell me about your story. Help me to understand what you've been through and some of the lessons you've learned. Well, I think that's an eternal principle that, you know, these people who have passed on, they, something resonates with them when we do that, when we say, you know, I want to learn more about so-and-so. And and I think what's great is that they, you know, often have the the ability to to give the heavenly help that's needed to you know, to make those miracles happen. So I think if any of your listeners are just struggling with faith and they haven't really seen any miracles in their life, I'd say start with family history work and try to find, try to experience a miracle from family history work. And and what's great about it is if you feel unworthy, you know, if you feel like, you know, you've made mistakes in your life, I think that is not a thing that's going to keep you from having wonderful experiences with family history work. I don't think to have good experiences doing family history research, you need to be temple worthy or you need to be. I love that. I absolutely love that. Totally agree with that. Um, You know, and I, yeah, I, I love that. Um, A couple thoughts come to my mind and I want you to tell us about this journal and the experience Mm. of finding that journal you showed me, but I remember a family friend, my, our niece's um, husband died suddenly, a man by the name of Ryan Runya, and he had mm-hmm. young kids. And yeah, I, re- I remember you posting about him a and, while ago, and I felt 
just a, just very sad about your that. age for um four young kids hope i'm getting that right and i remember going to his funeral and he had just been called as an elders quorum president and the general authority speaking says i can't help but think he's an elders quorum president hmm. that calling went with him into the next life and i really have loved that and when you talk about jerry i think um that reminds me of the same thing so um, I had a couple other thoughts come to mind, but I can only remember one at a time. So, oh, I do remember that same day that um, I learned that Ryan died. I remember being in the Detroit airport when a missionary from our stake was uh, missing in the one of those huge typhoons that hit the Philippines, a kid named mm. Johnson. Hmm. And I was in the restroom when I got the text that they, he had been found and he was alive. Hmm. And that same day, I got a text that Ryan had died. And I just think... Um, life is really complicated mm -hmm. and you've got Bob <laughs> Sharp and you've got your, you know, Jerry, yeah. Kelly, and I just, and the two different lives, but I love, I still come back to, he will lose nothing. Yeah. And what he's accomplished on the other side of the veil will become clearer to our mind. I don't know if Jerry were here and I don't know if this is a good question to ask if Jerry were here and if, and if we could say, Jerry, you know, you've been on the other side of the veil for how many years? Has <laughs> 75. He been on, he's been yeah. on the other side for 75. Jerry, you know, if you'd given been given the choice to live or go down in that plane, knowing mm. everything you know now, what would you choose? Mm. It'd be a fascinating question for Jerry to yeah. answer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what he'd answer, but I wonder <laughs> if he would answer, I probably I wouldn't choose anything different. Right. Because I have lost nothing. Mm -hmm. And as we understand Jerry's mission on the other side of the veil, with all these attributes you're describing of him, what he's accomplished mm -hmm. for good on the other side of the veil, he may say, I never could have accomplished that here. Yeah, I think that's... I, I don't know how... Yeah, yeah. And there's so many unknowns. You know, I don't know the answer to that. But I, you know, what I do know is that, uh, is again, that the gospel deals with unfairness, but it can take time, you know, that takes time, that it takes time. It doesn't happen all at once. And, you know, and, and one thing I haven't mentioned, Richard, which to me was the most, because when I first started doing this research, I enjoyed it, but it was hard. It, it was, it, it kind of, it was heavy. Right. You know, I, I think it's kind of like, you know, the work you do. Yeah. That I think you Real feel, yeah. yeah, you feel a calling and you feel that it's important, but I, it can be heavy. And I think often important work that's done is like that. And, 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 and it was work, this process, you know, I flew to California twice. I, you know, took a lot of time, but, you know, but it was heavy. And, and the thing that was heaviest to me was thinking of his mom because, you know, she loved him so much and every letter was written to his mom. And he talked so often about, mom, don't worry about me. You know, I'm going to be okay. And you can tell, you know, I don't have the letters that she wrote him, but you know, from what he wrote back that she was often so worried about him and she was just so devastated when he didn't come back. And how many you know, the, years did she live after he, she, yeah, she lived to 1978 and, and he died in 40, 44. So that's 30 some odd years. Yeah. 34 years, I think. And I don't know and if yeah, that was ever recovers from that. A yeah, mom, I don't know if a mom in this life ever heals from that. I really don't think a mom can fully heal from that. I know she she got really involved in temple work, and that gave her a lot of solace. But but her 
her daughter, Ruth, my great aunt told me, you know, my mom was never the same that, you know, she said the gospel did bring her a measure of comfort, but there was just this hole that was never filled. But, but, you know, one quick story, the culmination of my research, and this goes back to your question, did you know where this was going to lead? I really felt like an experience I had where I felt like, you know, this was really what was intended to happen was I actually had the thought Jerry needed a 90th birthday party. And so my mom and I organized, and it was when I was dating my now wife, Paige, she kind of helped organize this birthday party. But I had the thought, well, Jerry's buried in a beautiful part of the Salt Lake Cemetery up on the hill on the north side. It overlooks the valley. And and I thought, well, his birthday's uh, July 16th. And so on July 16th, 1944, I thought, well, let's have a birthday party for Jerry. We can we can have a meal at my parents' house. And we. I had a letter where he talked about how he wanted to go home and have a meal made by his mom because his mom owned, ran a bakery and was this amazing cook. And and this letter, Jerry talks about how he said, you know, I'd give anything for a Kelly's Sunday dinner, you know, roast beef, mashed potatoes, corn. And and so we took that letter and we, my mom made this meal. Way we, to go, Kathy. Yeah, no, she's an amazing lady. And, uh, and so we had Ruth, who at the time was, uh, you know, 88 years old. She flew in from California for this with her son, Phil, and Phil's wife, Lori. And I picked him up from the airport and we drove on this Sunday afternoon to my parents' house and we had this family reunion and it was a birthday party for Jerry. And and we actually did it on, um, I think it was July 14th. It was a couple of days before because we wanted to do it on a Sunday, you know, a couple of days before his actual birthday. And so we had the dinner and then we all caravan to Jerry's grave. And at the grave, we uh, I, I had a friend play a Shokin farewell on the violin, you know, that musical number from the Civil War documentary. And we had Ruth speak and share her memories of Jerry and and then some of his other friends speak and 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 then we did a balloon launch and 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 what was so funny is at the end of the program the sprinklers came on and we had all these old, you know, we had all these you know, we had Jerry's cousins there, you know, all these octogenarians and these people in their nineties <laughs> and the sprinklers come on and we kind of had the thought, okay, Jerry's teasing us. He's kind of telling <laughs> us, okay, enough about me kind of go on. But, but as we were leaving the cemetery, uh, Jerry's cousin, Alvin, by the way, handed me, uh, the program of my great grandma Violet's funeral. And I looked on the, um, uh, I looked on the program and it said that she passed away July 14th, 1978, that, you know, that very day. Wow. And the thought came to my mind, we're really celebrating that day because that was the day that, because Violet, throughout the war, her only hope was that she could welcome Jerry home safely and she never got that opportunity. But I said, the gospel of Jesus Christ meant that on that day, July 14th, 1978, the day my great grandma uh, passed away, that Jerry was able to welcome her home wow. to her heavenly home. And I just thought, it's okay. Because I, cause all through my research, that's the thing that weighed on me was, this was so sad for my great grandma that she had to endure that for so long. And I thought, it was sad. But I can know that she's okay because she's with Jerry. He's welcomed her home. And, and I just thought, what a blessing the resurrection is. And, you know, and, and when we go to the temple, you know, I know you serve in the temple every week. I, I just think that that's, 
you know, one of the things we gain from, from the temple is that understanding that, that, you know, our lives are eternal and that, and that the, again, these things get made up in the end. And, and it, you know, even knowing that it doesn't make these hard experiences easy. You know, I know if I went through something like what my great grandmother went through, I would be devastated despite my knowledge of the gospel. It's Agreed. not, but I think it does give, you and know, I think that, we have to honor the pain of that and hear that pain. Yeah. Because it, yeah. Cause I think even if you have a great testimony of the plan of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even if you know in your heart, you'll see a loved one again. You know, I just think it doesn't lessen the pain. You know, it's still an extremely heavy cross to bear to, you know, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like, but, but again, this is why family history is so powerful is that you can look back and you can kind of see, you can see a story play out from beginning to end and you can kind of witness a happy ending, so to speak. So I love that. Uh, talk about this journal uh, that um, oh, you yeah. found along the way and talk about the book now that's been written. Oh, yes. Um, So, yeah, so first, Ryan's got a little, describe the size of this journal you're holding and how you found it, what's in it. Yeah, so uh, in my research, about a few months into my research, I reached out to Jerry's best friend from high school, Cliff Lawrence, who was still alive at the time. And he was in- What were they eating at Granite High School in 1942? <laughs> I know a lot of them- I want to go research the menu, the cafeteria yeah, menu or the work habits. I know or... a lot of them did well. <laughs> uh, but Cliff- um, he was in failing health at the time and his memory wasn't, you know, perfect. He had had some heart problems and, but he had this amazing spirit about him. Just being in his presence, you felt a strong spirit about him. But his wife, Carol, uh, she was fairly, a uh, few years younger than, than Cliff, sharp as a tack. And, and she, um, when I went to go visit Cliff, I actually went with Paige, my now wife, we were dating at the time. What a great and, date. Oh, it was a great date. If you're, <laughs> if you're dating someone, do a family history thing together because it'll really bring you together. But, uh, but we go there and just had this wonderful visit with Cliff. And at the end of our visit, his wife, Carol, said, Ryan, I have something to give you. I found it yesterday, totally random. I found it yesterday. Yeah, she said, I was going through a drawer. I wasn't looking for anything, but I knew you would be coming tomorrow. And she said, I, I open up this drawer and here's this little journal on the front. It says General Electric Supply Corporation, 1942. It's a little black journal. And she says, I open it up and it has the name Jerry Kelly written in cursive. Uh, 3240 Highland Drive, uh, Salt Lake, Utah, phone number 68033, back when it was five digit phone numbers. And there's not much written in the journal, but, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, a calendar where there are a few dates where it will say things like went to the prom, took, you know, Pat Cunnington. And, and he just wrote some little things in there. And then he also went on a, on a senior trip with Cliff and with his other friend, Grant. And he records every time they filled up gas on the, on the trip, filled their car up with gas. And every time they stayed in lodging and so there's not much written in it, but it just, how did this journal get into that drawer? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. But in, in the Ensign article I wrote, I was trying to capture what I felt when, when Carol gave me that journal. And, and the way I described it, which is why 
I think writing is so good when when you're doing this research because it helps you clarify your thoughts. But I, I, I ended up writing that when she gave me the journal, I had the thought that um, that the spirit, including Jerry, was assisting me in my efforts from the other side of the veil. And I don't know how that happens, but but you know whether you call it the spirit of Elijah, you know I've I've learned through this process. Our church does not have a monopoly on family history work. You know some of the best genealogists I know uh, are are not you know members of our faith. And and I, I once was talking to this friend who's a professional genealogist, and I said, I said you have things like this happen. You know, and I told her the story of the journal. I said, you have things like this happen in your research. And she said, oh, all the time. And I said, what do you call that? And she said, oh, I call it genealogy serendipity. And I said, oh, I love that. And, and I think that those are fun moments when, when you have genealogy serendipity. I love that. So talk about this book that's now been written about yeah, multiple so, people. Yeah, so many things happen in my research. One of the serendipitous things that happened was so Jerry, when he was a pilot in World War II, he had these two friends from Utah, and they were fellow pilots who together they served throughout the war in pilot training, and then together they got assigned to the same flight squadron in World War II. And um, the three of them, they were all Latter-day Saints from Utah, and they called themselves the Three Musketeers. And it was Jerry Kelly, Bob Sharp, Don Evans. Bob Sharp is still alive in California. Don Evans passed away in 1999, but he has this amazing World War II story where after Jerry got shot down two months later in the thick of the Battle of the Bulge, he got shot down in Belgium and his plane got shot up 200 feet above the air. He miraculously bailed out, opened his parachute, one swing of the parachute, landed on a downhill slope, somehow survived but then was captured by uh, SS troopers and was forced to do a 200-mile POW march to Frankfurt in wow. that very cold winter. So as I'm doing my research, I, you know, I learned about Don Evans and Bob Sharp in the letters Jerry wrote. You know, I read about how much he wrote about him. And I was able to find Bob Sharp and find out he was still alive, but, uh, but I knew Don Evans had passed away. But when I talked to Bob for the first time, he said, he said, Ryan, you won't believe this. I've been talking to Don's son, Ken, for the last year or even a couple of years. He's been working on a book about his dad's World War II story. And he said, and just last week, he said, you know, I just wish I had more information on Jerry Kelly. So he said, so your timing is perfect. And so I reached out to Ken and for the last five and a half years, we've just been, we've become very close friends. And I've been kind of a little bit of a research assistant as he's written this book. And he, Ken poured his heart and soul into this book. And, and I, I think it's a fantastic book. Uh, he self-published it. He's a first time author. You can, you can buy it on Amazon and, you know, and, uh, and the name of the book is, yeah, it's called missing. And it, it, Kenneth D Evans. Yeah. Kenneth D Evans. It's, it's primarily the story of his dad, Don Evans and his miraculous, survival story of World War II, you know, after he, his plane got shot down and he was made a POW. And, and uh, it, it's a lot about, because Don, he was married and he wrote 300 letters home to his wife and Ken had all of those letters. So he was able to use his letters 
And then the letters I was able to provide him of Jerry's, and he was able to write this uh, narrative nonfiction book, which, you know, it's a book that... How long did it take? How many years did it take to write? Yeah, it was a 10-year project for him. And it was really a part-time job, sometimes a full-time job for 10 years. You wouldn't believe how much work he put into it. And, and I love the book. It's, it's amazing. And I just, uh, you know, if, if anyone reads it, I just promise you, it's just one of those books you just are so inspired by because it's such an amazing story. And Jerry is, you know, he's probably 20% of the book, which is so cool. It's so That's cool to so me that cool. a big part of his, his life is now written down in this, in this book. It's a pretty inspiring story, and I think of one of my favorite talks. I do remember that talk about the Titanic and songs mm-hmm. unsung. It's a talk that's been in my mind too, but not as much as yours. But I love Elder Uchtdorf's impressionistic painting talk is that all these dots happen. It's, sometimes it's hard to see the totality until you get further along. And yeah, now as you sit here and tell this story, and I realize there's a lot more you could tell with this book in front of you, with these letters— with all the connections you've made mm-hmm. and with the short time clock, with a lot of the people you needed to connect with that are now gone mm-hmm. and what that's meant to so many people and what vision it's created as you share that story for others to do similar things. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has, you know, a Jerry Kelly situation, but everybody has um, people that have gone before them whose stories need to be told. And I also love what you talked about family history being a way to, just grow spiritually, no matter mm-hmm. where you are. There's no belief or behavior hurdle that you need no, to go start there's doing not. Yeah. family history. And so, and to feel the spirit and to grow spiritually and feel closer with God and feel God's love for you and God's ability to work through you as you to work through family history is very, very mm-hmm. thoughtful. Yeah. Um, any more? Th- I want to give a big shout out to your parents. I know you have too. They've been great mentors to me in my life, Tom and Kathy, that We've been in the same ward for 20 years. Um, I have to tell one LGBTQ story, even though this hasn't been an LGBTQ <laughs> podcast, but Ryan asked kind of how I stepped in this space. Um, and I remember it's been kind of a long journey, but somewhere along the line, I had a conversation with your father when he was a YSA stake president. And I don't know how the topic even came up, but somebody in his stake, maybe in a leadership position said, well, they choose to be gay. And your dad said, when did you choose to be straight? <laughs> and I, and we didn't discuss it. We just kind of went on with our conversation. But that stuck in my mind hmm. and helped me as I became a YSA bishop. And then for the first time, had stewardship responsibility for a couple of gay hmm. men. And it just kind of was part of my programming to be willing to kind of try to really understand. Mm-hmm. So your dad in a number of areas and your moms have been, you know, they're have been great mentors to my wife and I and and all of you as you've grown up in the ward. Um, any other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners about this story or just thoughts you'd like to share in closing? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, well, and thank you for sharing that story about my dad. I remember him telling me that, and that was back in, I think, 2005. So it was before, this you know, This is 14 media. years ago. Yeah, this was is before, a long time ago. Yeah, and I remember, you know, that was just something he he just articulated that in a, in a clear and effective way. And, and it's an example that if you, if you can articulate something succinctly and clearly, you know, it can have the power to just open people's perspective about complicated things. So I yeah, appreciate yeah. you sharing that. But I, 
but yeah, going back to this story, I, you know, I would just, yeah, close with, um, just what, 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 what an amazing thing history is that, you know, I love reading history and, and, you know, often the good history books I read are about famous people, but I think some of the greatest stories of human history are stories of, um, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. And if, if you don't mind, Richard, the way our podcast got going was I posted a story from yes. this book missing and, and you commented on my post that you liked the story so much you, you wanted to have me on the podcast. And so I thought I had to tell good this story. So, um, so th this is a story told on page 337 of Ken Evans book missing. And this is, um, I think 10 days after Ken's dad, Don had been shot down. And at this time he's on a March as a POW and sub-zero temperature with a light jacket, just trying to survive. And the Germans are marching these band of POWs, he and several other American POWs to Frankfurt to get him on a train to send him up to the Stalag Luft uh, one POW camp. And he's just trying to survive day by day and, you know, just the most miserable conditions you could imagine. But he, he's on day 10 and he, he was a pilot. And when he'd go into these towns, these German towns on this march, his fellow band of POWs had to protect him because the townspeople would see Don's uh, American pilot flight jacket and the Germans hated the American pilots because they were the ones dropping bombs on their towns. And, and Don said, you know, I understand why they hated me, but I had to be careful because there was a risk that these just ordinary townspeople were going to try to kill me. And he said that his hatred for his enemy reached a maximum. And then he said he had this experience. He, and I'll, I'll read from Ken actually quotes from his dad's personal history now. So these are the words, actual words of Don Evans. Uh, he says, when we arrived in Koblenz, the streets in town were lined with hundreds of German army supply trucks parked next to buildings and housing projects where they couldn't be so easily seen by our planes from the air. While we were marching through, the city came under heavy attack by Allied fighter bombers. Our guards forced us right next to the supply trucks targeted by our planes, likely in the hope they could get rid of us. Luckily, the P-47 skipped over our end of the truck convoy. They were strafing after completely destroying the other end. Being on the receiving end of bombs, machine guns, and rockets was a scary experience. It made it easier to understand the hatred the German people had for our planes and pilots. Then something completely unexpected happened to me, something that forever changed my life. As I stood next to a rundown apartment building for protection against the bombing and strafing raid, I stepped back into a little doorway. Suddenly, the door opened. My first impression was that someone was going to shoot me. Instead, a little old German lady, dressed in several layers of old, tattered, and torn clothing to protect her from the cold, held out her hand and put some hard rock candy into my hand. There she was in ragged clothes in a war-torn city, somehow surviving in a partially destroyed apartment without heat or electricity, bombs blasting all around her, having no doubt had family members killed in the war with every right to hate me, her enemy. Instead, 
She shared part of her precious Christmas candy with me. Then she looked into my eyes and said, uh, in German, God bless you. Up to that moment, my heart was full of hatred for my enemy. This little German woman's compassion for me, her enemy, exemplified the principle, love thine enemies and do good to them that hate thee. Her example softened my heart and provided me with one of the greatest learning experiences of my life, one I'll never forget. And I can't even begin to explain how good, explain how good those little pieces of candy tasted. And, and going back, you know, I hope in the next life, you know, one of the first people I'm going to want to meet is this little old German lady, because, you know, I learned so many inspiring stories in my research, but none more inspiring than when I read a first draft copy of Ken's book and read that story. And I just think, you know, what an amazing woman. And, and I'm so, so glad that Ken wrote this book, because now her story can be preserved. And even though we don't know her name, her, it's an example that kindness and love does make an impact. And it can continue to make an impact 80 years after the act of kindness. And, and I, I just think all the work I did to, to do this research, if it was all to just learn that one story about that little old German lady, that would have been worth all the, all the work. So. Um, thank you, Ryan. I love the way you ended with that. It's really a touching story. So thank you, Ryan Kelly, um, your dear wife, Paige, that's been a part of this. Um, you know, Jerry, if you're listening, if somehow you can hear this story, thanks for your guiding hand over Ryan and and all you've done to help people on the other side and this side and what a legacy you have. And even though very few people here on the earth know you firsthand, we know you. Um, we know more about you and we hope to all meet you. And I have to think of the bear hug that Ryan and Jerry are going to have and the gratitude Jerry's going to have for Ryan for what he's done and how Ryan's just acted on impressions to do what Jerry needed him to do. And maybe that was a pre-earth life deal they made. I have no idea. <laughs> um, but, um, and thank all of our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>